We are finally in Revelation chapter 20. And uh, it is a good chapter. And it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this because there are going to be some topics that we need to discuss, as I'll mention later, that are important. Um, one of the things that's very difficult to do is how do you explain the color blue to someone that's been blind from birth? You could say, well, you know, it's color of the sky. Well, that means nothing. They've never seen the sky. You know, it, it, how do you do that? And in essence, that's what we're trying to do here is we're trying to explain something that we have, I mean, we are absolutely blind to. The scriptures give us some indications of a few things, but when it gets to this whole chapter in the millennial reign, I want you to know I don't have a clue. And I don't think anybody else does either, to be honest. I know that there are options, there are possibilities, but the scriptures don't give us a lot of detail. You'll see some for sure, but even that, it's, it's hard for us to understand because we just cannot relate to that at all. With that said, part of that is the reason that we have so many different views of what we're about to get into here in chapter 20. You've got an amillennial view or a millennial view, which basically says there is no millennial. Um, and what that means is we're in it right now. Christ ushered it in, and we have been in it for the last 2,000 years plus. So we will talk about that. There is also a premillennial view that basically says that Christ is going to reign before the millennium begins, and there's a post-millennial view that basically is Christ reigns after the millennial view, or after the millennium. And so we're going to kind of look at some of that as well. But before we do, I want you to understand that we know that God is the creator, that he created the universe in six days. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. The Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years. There were definitely 12 tribes of Israel. But does that mean that God only symbolically created the earth in six days? Well, some say that. I don't believe that. Uh, do you believe that the Israelites symbolically wandered in the desert for 40 years? Or that Jonah was just symbolically in the fish for three days? Well, Jesus didn't seem to suggest that when he said, I'm going to give you a sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah, just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. The Son of Man is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The point being is there is a yes and no to every one of those questions. All of those things truly did happen. Forty years, three days, six days. But there is a symbolic aspect to it that they symbolize something. Jonah being three days in the belly of a fish symbolically represented Christ would do the same for those three days. I believe the six days of creation were symbolic that there would be 6,000 years of history. A day is like a 1,000 years before the Lord would come back. All of these have symbolic aspects, but there is a literal truth to them. And so I do believe that this is a literal 1,000 years 
It fits nicely into the patterns of 6,000 years and then the seventh day being the day of rest. As Hebrews 4 says, there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That would be the seventh day creation. And so I don't want to lose the symbolism, but I also don't want to lose the literal aspect of this. But like I said, that is why there are going to be so many different views. Amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, those kind of things. So to give you a little intro to this chapter, I want to just give you a couple of examples of the word thousand being used in Scripture. That it is symbolic. Psalm 50 verse 10, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. How about 1,500 hills? Does God own each one of those too? Well, of course He does. But you get the point. I don't think you need a PhD to understand what's being talked about here in context. Deuteronomy 1.11, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as He has promised. Well, you've had a thousand blessings in your life. You're done. All right. Sucks to be you from here on out. No. Okay, this is an analogy, and we know what he's saying, right? Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 68, 17, The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Psalm 84.10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So you can see all of these verses have a thousand as exaggerations or overemphasized points. Daniel, on the other hand, was able to glean from reading the scriptures and looking at numbers and while there may be some symbolic aspects to it, he saw the literal meaning that they would be in Babylon for only 70 years, according to uh, Daniel 9.2. And he knew this because of Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, and Isaiah 23, verses 15 through 17. So he clearly understood the literal aspect of those numbers. I don't believe that Scripture ever gives any indication of the numbers being symbolic without either the context clearly telling you that or telling you it's symbolic. Um, we, we see that you know, in Revelation when something is meant to be figurative, he literally tells you that. So even in Daniel and Ezekiel, we see examples of numbers that were not figurative in their number, even though you might say Daniel and Ezekiel are very prophetic and hard to understand. And so that's the excuse that Revelation in these thousand years is prophetic and therefore we can't take it literally. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. If Revelation is symbolic and figurative, why does John point out in the book of Revelation when things are figurative, but does not here? 
back in Revelation 11, verse 8. And, you know, the figuratively uh, called Jerusalem or whatever it is there. If this was, John does that so many times. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the churches. He'll explain things. But when it comes to this, he doesn't give, you know, any disclaimer or mention of it being symbolic. So that's one reason I would say there's no point in saying that this is just a symbol. Why is the throne of God that we see in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, as well as chapter 21, verse 11, and chapter 22, verse 1, described in the exact same way that we see in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verse 10? And Exodus is a historical book. Yet, I've met many people, and typically the amillennial view, will, who will say, that God's throne and the description of the sea of glass and all of these things, it's just symbols of, you know, something else. But not literal. But yet, in Exodus, a historical, literal book, they see the exact same, same thing. We talked about that when we looked at that earlier in Revelation. We see that um, in Revelation 12, 14, God helps deliver his people by the wings of an eagle. And yet, the same thing is described in Exodus 19, verse 4. Does that mean God literally went and picked up his children on a wing of it? No. Again, we can understand symbolism there. In Revelation 11, the two witnesses use the same miracles that Moses and Elijah do. But Moses and Elijah, when they were stopping it from raining for three and a half years, it was not symbolic. Why would you think it would be here? than in the book of Revelation. On the other hand, remember the prophecy about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, it says of him in Luke chapter 3, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. If you would take that too literally, one might say that John was going to build highways through the desert. But we don't have anybody arguing that that was the case, do we? Part of the reason is because we can look back on it. And so we know what happened. Hence the difficulty of understanding much of Scripture. With all of that said, however, I want you to understand that you've got different denominations who are going to stand on this is the way it is, or this over here is the way it is. How is that any different than the Pope telling the church what they have to believe as well? You don't need to read your Bible. I'll, tell it, I'll, t I'll explain it to you. So with that said, I encourage you to read and study your scriptures. And I know that's why you're here. But we have to let scriptures tell us what truth is, not a particular denomination that you grew up with or a doctrine that has been preached when we talked about the rapture, I brought up some things that aren't your typical things that are explained, but yet the Jews had a different view of the rapture. Maybe that was right. We have to go to Scripture and let the Scriptures speak. So, 
One more thing here before we really jump into it, Acts 1.6. If there is no literal 1,000 years, why would Jesus not take this as an opportunity to tell his disciples, oh, you, you've been misunderstanding this? Because this is after he has been crucified, after he has been resurrected. It says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come and set up this literal, earthly kingdom. Well, doesn't that kind of sound like what the millennium, the millennial reign is? Yeah. So you're going to have the amillennial people who are going to tell you, well, that's what Jesus came to do. So yes, he did establish the kingdom. Those pre or post are going to say, no, there is a thousand year millennium and Christ is coming to, to reign. But he goes on in verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Doesn't that kind of sound like, yeah, it's coming, but you, it's not for you to know? Not, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I, you, you thought that I was going to come and set up, no, it's not, that, that's, that, that was wrong. You misunderstand. You err in the scriptures. Have you not read? But he doesn't say any of that. He seems to be saying, yes, there is a thousand year period here. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Kind of like, no, I'm not setting up the kingdom now, but I'm going to leave somebody with you that is going to give you power and strength until that day comes. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Honestly, this, yeah, go ahead. His, not necessarily, but uh, just the, the messianic reign of the kingdom. Yeah. Is that and, a commonly held belief before that insight was given in Revelation? I don't know about the thousand years. And that's the interesting part is one of the things that I've been preaching to you is if it's in the new, it's got to be in the old. Okay, You can't have something new without it being explained in the old. We don't have anything that says a thousand years for a reign in the Old Testament. And that's what makes it very difficult. We do have all kinds of things talking about him reigning, all kinds of things that are going to talk about stuff that clearly hasn't happened yet. And so it's not that this thousand year period isn't talked about in Revelation, I think, or in the Old Testament. I believe it is. It's just the thousand-year part is not mentioned. Um, I know that the literal reign of Christ, not just this amillennial aspect of it, was the first three centuries after Christ widely accepted. It wasn't until Origen came in the third century who in, in, in Alexandria who came and began to allegorize the scriptures where this amillennial view began to gain some ground. Did you say that was the origin? Yes, origin was the origin. <laughs> yeah. So, with all of that in mind, let's jump into this. 
Revelation 20, verse 1, it says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now keep in mind the context here, just what we finished in chapter 19. The beast and the false prophet had been thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, as we will see later, is the second death. They're not coming back. Once you're thrown into the lake of, the fi lake of fire, you're, you're not coming out. Now, being thrown into the abyss, it seems, as we'll talk about, there were some that can come out of the abyss. The lake of fire, it's over. That's the second death. So at this time, it is extremely important for you to understand that the beast and the false prophet, or the Antichrist and the anti-Holy Spirit, are gone. If we are in an amillennial view, and we're in the millennial now, the beast, the Antichrist, has already come and is in hell. The anti-Holy Spirit has come and he's gone. Okay. Some will say, well, Nero was the Antichrist and, you know, all these kind of things. But I don't see this. I don't see it working out that way. John is seeing this angel holding the key to the abyss and a great chain. Why? Because he's about to throw the devil into it. Not the lake of fire. Those are two different things. The abyss is rather kind of a, a holding place for demons, it seems. The same word for this word abyss is used in Luke chapter 17. And uh, I think, let's see here, I lost my place. Um, yeah, at Luke chapter 8, that's where I was wrong here. If you recall when the demons that came out of Legion, they begged Jesus to say, they say, you know, are, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And they beg him to not cast him into the abyss, basically. So it's not a good place. They don't want to go there. But it does seem to be a holding place. Um, in Romans that you see here, in Romans 10, 7, but the righteous that is by faith says, or righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. That is the same word. The word deep is the same word that's used here for abyss. Point being, for now, it is a very real place. Not symbolic. There are people today who think that, you know, hell can just be symbolic and whatnot. No. The Antichrist, the false prophet, have been cast into literal lake of fire or the, the second death. And the abyss is a literal holding place. Um, so I think it's be, caref be careful to allegorize this to lose the literal aspect of the punishment for the ungodly. Um, we know, as I said, it's an undesirable place. And I mentioned that you can also come up out of it. Not freely, but what we saw in Revelation 9, 11, and 11, 7 is that the abyss was opened 
and you had these demons that came out that were allowed to bring you know, wrath upon people. And that's why I say it's a holding place that for a time they can't do anything, but there are keys to the abyss. And that can be opened by only God, it seems, to allow them to wreak havoc on the earth. Well, anyway, it moves on here in verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, this angel does. That dragon is the devil. That serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That's probably why the angel has the keys. going to lock him up. As I said earlier in chapter 9, verse 2, the angel was given the key to the abyss at the fifth trumpet, and smoke like a furnace arose, bringing these dreadful locusts upon the earth. Whether this abyss is compartmentalized as possibly Sheol is, we don't know. But Peter seems to suggest when he says that these fallen angels were held in this dungeon until Judgment Day. That, as I've mentioned, they're reserved for a set time. Not the lake of fire, the abyss. One thing that I think is important that's going to come up later, in Second Peter it says that Jesus went and he preached to the spirits in prison. It seems to be that place who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. Well, and that could be the lower parts of Sheol, not the abyss too. But um, the reason I'm bringing it up is one of the things that we are going to need to talk about to understand Revelation 20 accurately or to get the full picture is what happens when you die. Do you become dust and that's it? Are you conscious or are you unconscious? Do you sleep until the resurrection or are you awake and with the Lord now only in spirit? What's going on? And I'll just leave it at that for now. But nothing is directly said of the dragon being there in Peter, and I think it's probably because of more of a Sheol thing than an abyss thing, but point being is nothing is said anywhere of you know Satan go or uh, God going and preaching to Satan anywhere. Nothing is said of Satan being bound. As a matter of fact, it says that he's allowed to roam about, seeking whom he may devour. Um, we see that Ephesians warns us that our, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities. It, it's almost as if evil is not bound. And you say, well, it, I mean, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they're already gone. I mean, now you got Satan, and if Satan is bound and he can't deceive the nations... 
then who are these powers and authorities that we're battling and fighting and warring against that the entire New Testament talks about? Isaiah recorded this here. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. It seems here that Satan and many of his followers are going to be punished after many days. And thus perhaps, doesn't say it, but perhaps after the millennium. Whatever that may be. But, by the way, this does mean this, then, that not all sin comes from the devil. It's easy for us to say the devil made me do it. No, the devil doesn't make you do anything. You were created with a choice. You were created with the ability to reject. And now with the Holy Spirit, especially, not only the power and discernment to reject, but the ability to reject Satan's temptations. Um, so don't get rid of free will by thinking, oh, the devil is bound, so there is no more sin possible. You know, growing up in the Lutheran church, we always sin the flesh. It's called by the flesh and the devil, basically. We're redeemed by the world, the, the flesh, and the devil. We have a fallen nature. However, don't forget as well that as Christians, the Bible says that we have died to the old self and now we have put on the new self that we now share in the divine nature of God. That we are now, we have eternal life right now. That though you are, once you were dead, now you are alive. That that spirit living in you changes things. It changes things in some ways. We'll talk about that in other things coming up too but anyway it has been suggested that because satan is introduced in chapter 12 as the dragon of revelation and he's never mentioned again until now that they say at the beginning of the new testament era satan was bound for a thousand years and that thousand years representing the entire time up to the present this amillennial view. Because chapter 12, remember this dragon was waiting for Christ to be born and all of that kind of thing. And so he's not mentioned again. So yep, Christ came, threw him in. But we've already talked about all these verses or some verses that don't seem to allow that to be the case with the devil roaming around and so on. In order to fit the thousand year period into the whole New Testament area, one has to concede that Satan can only deceive through his beast and false prophet because he'd be bound. But that's not the chronological order of things here as we've already talked about. That is a major problem because they're already thrown into the lake of fire before this. So the only way to get around this is to view Satan being bound as a restriction. Okay, but I don't think that makes any sense either. But that's how it is typically explained. 
is Satan is restricted because you now have the Holy Spirit. He cannot deceive you. Here in uh, Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So, with the Holy Spirit, the armor of God, Satan is limited in his power today. And these same verses then could show that he's at work deceiving the nations right now, though, if you ask me. Put on the full armor of God because he is deceiving the nations. So it all depends on how you look at it. John 12, 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, they'll say. Sounds like Satan is driven out. Okay, so in John, is he, you know, driven out, but is that the same as being bound? That could be a difference there. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, Satan has bound God because... He's disarmed him, or I'm sorry, God has disarmed Satan. Yeah, I know, yeah. So, again, is that the same thing as being bound? To me, he's disarmed the powers and authorities by giving us the spirit, but he has not bound the devil. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. See, Satan's been destroyed, bound. Well then, why all the evil in the world? And it says so that he might be destroyed. Can that be future tense? Yes, the reason that he's going to be able to be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the thousand years and bound before the thousand years is because of Christ taking his reign and authority. But right now, we see the Bible tells us who is the prince of this world. Still, the prince of this world now stands condemned. His judgment has been, you know, voiced, but it has not been carried out yet. That's going to be more the binding and the lake of fire. Matthew 12, 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus was casting out demons. Kingdom of God has come upon you. Isn't that what we're waiting for? The kingdom of God. And yet, here it says, we're in it. See what I mean? It's not so cut and dry. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up, you might say, binds the strong man. When Jesus came, he bound Satan. So, from an amillennial perspective, I have to give him some credit here. 
I can see where you could get that from Scripture. I don't accept it, but I can see where you get it. So, one thing that you need to understand here in this particular passage is this is a parable. Um, and so, it can't be, you, you don't make doctrines out of parables. But, with that parable and the meaning of it, I do believe that Satan is tied up for us as Christians. So, they'll say that Satan cannot go out to deceive the nations, meaning a certain group of people, not the world. You guys, as Christians, with the Holy Spirit in you, Satan is bound. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Why? Because Satan is bound. So, I think there is some truth to the amillennial view. Meaning, just like I said before, that there is a literal and then there's a symbolic meaning to it, I think that there is the patterns that we've talked about over and over in the Jewish way of thinking that, yes, Satan is bound in a picture, in, a, in an allegorical way, but only as a picture of what the future is going to show when he will be cast out forever and have zero power for anybody. So going back to this in Revelation 20, verse 2, let's look at this again. It says, Satan is not going to deceive the who anymore? The nations. The word here in Greek is ethnos. It literally means non-Jewish nation. Or in the Hebrew, it would be goyim. Gentiles. Therefore, if one does not focus on the word bound here and focus a little bit more on the deceive the nations, there can be another explanation that could be understood. The purpose of the binding of Satan was so that Satan could no longer deceive the Gentile nations. Prior to Christ's coming, the Jewish people had a monopoly on God. Right? It wasn't for the Gentiles. That was the big deal in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 15. Whoa, the Holy Spirit's given to the Gentiles? No, God is for us. And so, if this is a literal thousand years, perhaps during the t that time, the Gentiles are going to realize that they have given up the Jewishness of the Scriptures to follow their own traditions. So, again, but depending on which way you look at it, on one hand, from an amillennial view, you can see God bound Satan and opened up so that he could deceive the Gentiles no more, and the gates have been opened for the Gentiles to come into the church. From a literal perspective, I see it more Zechariah 8, 22 and 23. That in the end times, there are going to be Gentiles. They're going to understand, like I said, we've made up our own traditions, our own festivals to worship God. We've decided to worship God in our own way, ways that aren't in Scripture. And that 
in the end times that we're all going to be brought back into, you might say, the, the Jewishness of scriptures. Zechariah 8.22, yes, many peoples and strong nations, and by the way, this is talking about end times in Zechariah, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of na and nation shall grasp the sleeve or hem of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's what I've been seeing going on especially in the last 10 years, more and more Gentile believers understanding the Jewishness of Scriptures. Notice as well where they're going. They're going to be gathered to where? Jerusalem. What have we just been seeing in Revelation? The nations are gathered to Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And at that point, are they grabbing on to the hem of the Jew, the tzitzit of the Jew, and realizing, wow, we have inherited lies from our forefathers, things of vanity, things of no benefit, as Jeremiah said. That's the way I see it. But the amillennial view, I see that too. Right? Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Now that's a big question. Who's they? doesn't tell us and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them so whoever they are they get to judge then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So once Satan is bound, we've covered that somewhat. Now you've got they judging. Well, we've got a couple of things that I think biblically would answer who they are. Matthew 19, verse 28, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things. I think we're pretty much there. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, speaking to the disciples here, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the renewal, 12 thrones and judging, and judgment was committed to them. Could be the 12 disciples. We also read in Matthew 25, 31 through 32, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, we're at that point here in Revelation, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When judgment is taking place, what's happening? Separation of sheep and goats. Okay. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And he goes on to talk about, if you guys can't judge you know, your own things here, how are you going to judge in the kingdom of God? Whereas the 12 disciples seem to be judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel, we see in Matthew 25 saying all the nations. You could argue that maybe, you know, those 12 tribes, everybody's assigned a tribe or whatever, I don't know. But we also see 1 Corinthians 6, 2 saying all the saints are going to judge. When the Lord comes back riding on that white horse, the saints are coming with him. So who the they is are believers for sure. Whether it's restricted to the 12 disciples or all believers, I don't know. Okay? I would have to go look, but I would guess that it is ethnos there. They, I don't know specifically in this verse, but I'll tell you that Romans says this, that at judgment day, judgment will first begin with the Jew, then the Gentile. So there's no question they will be judged. Is that the separation of the 12 disciples versus the saints? I don't know. Does that, you know, do we just not have all the details and the timing here? I don't know. The, it, it could be. There's just no way for me to answer that. All I know is, yes, the Jews will be judged. First, in fact. Okay. In Matthew 25, like that verse that you're talking about, it is ethnos. It is ethnos? Okay, yeah. Very good, thank you. So, um, we read in Daniel chapter 7, I'm just going to read it here, verses 21 and 22. As I watched... This horn, the Antichrist, was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the and they possessed the kingdom. So there's that word, they possessed the kingdom, referring to the saints there again. So, um, I believe that it's probably both the 12, 12 uh, disciples, and the saints. But the difference here is this. In Revelation 20, verse 4, I think it's the 12 disciples. And the biggest reason is because I saw thrones. The saints are going to judge, but I don't see anywhere where it says all the saints get thrones. What I see is the disciples get thrones, according to Matthew 19. But... In essence, all the saints are going to judge. But here, specifically, I think it's the disciples. There's kind of that hierarchy also. I think Paul, personally. So, um, And that they are going to be, you know, uh, the ones that are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Notice as well, uh, again, it's just, it's like a branch that goes off into many directions. But these people had not taken the image of the beast, had not worshipped his name. And you might say, well, then these people have to be ones that have gone through the tribulation period in the end times. Not necessarily. If you recall when we talked about the mark of the beast, everybody has had a mark of the beast moment. I think every generation has done it. The mark of the beast doesn't have to be just... A, yes, those are mark of the beast moments leading up to the mark of the beast moment. But just as the mark of the beast, you take a, a symbol on your hand or forehead, the laws and commandments of God were put on your hand and your head. 
And anytime we choose to reject the Word of God, you are taking the mark of the beast. You are worshiping Him, the image. And so even the disciples in that day, and I gave you some history when we went and looked through that, things that you were literally branded on the forehead and whatnot, if you would not, if you would deny Christ, you weren't. But if you, you know, didn't deny Christ, you were branded. And so we see these different aspects of taking the mark so that, yes, even the disciples had a mark of the beast moment, a choice to not serve the devil, to obey the commandments of God. So just because it says that doesn't rule out the disciples, if that makes sense. Now, when a person dies, we know for sure, because the Bible says it, they do not receive a new body right away. The question is, does their soul go to be with Christ immediately? I think Scripture says yes. But then there's another question. Is that soul conscious or not? That one we're going to look at next time. I'm going to leave you hanging. But it won't be until the seventh trumpet blows that the perishable becomes imperishable the mortal becomes immortal, as Scripture says. The seventh trumpet we have passed already. So keep that in mind here, that the seventh trumpet blows, millennial reign takes place after that. Um, as you're going to see here next, these souls seem to have resurrected bodies. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. What does it mean, the rest of the dead? I think in other words, everyone who dies before the Antichrist begins his persecution of the saints they will not come to life until after the thousand years are over. If you read it here that you have to be alive to take the mark of the beast, that you have to be in the seven-year tribulation period taking the mark, because here it says that they had not worshipped the beast in the image. That means they had to have been experiencing that. So if you take it as only that seven-year period, then only the people in this seven-year tribulation period are the ones that are coming to life. And the rest of the dead, like Abraham, Adam, my grandma and grandpa, they will not come to life until after the next thousand years. Because they didn't go through the mark of the beast moment. But if you take it as the mark of the beast moment can be throughout history, everybody's had a Mark of the Beast moment, then the rest of the dead could be who? I tend to think the rest of the dead are the ungodly. Because the ones that are right, the first resurrection are those who have not taken the mark, who have not worshipped the beast, 
who have re not rejected God's commandments, ultimately, who have followed him. That's the first resurrection. I used to kind of look at this as, well, only those that go through the tribulation, and then i got to wait another thousand years before I get my resurrection. And it was kind of a bummer. But it, I don't think it really matters. And we'll get to that next week too, but or next time. But anyway, you can see the differences here. So if you note in verse 4, it mentioned that the souls of these people were seen. But now... In verse 5, it said they came to life. Okay, verse 4. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These souls come to life in verse 5. Because the rest don't live. So are your souls alive prior to a resurrection? Something to think about for later. Just wanted to point it out now. Um, we read here in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. God can make us alive even when we're dead in transgressions. And so this whole idea of life and death, we often tend to think of it as, well, your life, because you've got the breath of life in you right now, but, you know, if I shoot you, you're dead. Even though we know that you're alive somewhere, somehow, we have to kind of maybe think a little deeper about this. And again, I probably, this is stuff to plant ideas for two weeks from now. Three weeks? Okay, yeah, three weeks. It will be three weeks. Sorry. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, then come back and tell us, would you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now that's interesting to me because this first resurrection then, the second death has zero power over you. What is the second death? The second death is the lake of fire. So that means that anybody in the first resurrection doesn't go through the lake of fire. But it almost implies like if you're not in the first resurrection, you could go to the lake of fire. Right? That's why I say I don't think the rest of the dead are believers. I think they are ungodly that are going to rise for judgment at the end. Because. Yeah, it, it does kind of talk about that, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be all of the above. Um, so anyway, there is a special blessing for those who take part in this millennial reign. They're not going to fall as the second death or, uh, you know, go to hell, basically, you might say, because hell has no power over them. Um, 
in Thessalonians here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, this next verse, it could suggest that all who die because of Christ rise first and are especially blessed, regardless of the timing of the millennial reign. Remember, if every generation has the mark of the beast, like I said before, then anyone who has rejected evil and followed Christ will rise in the first resurrection. Kind of said that, but just to reiterate, because now keep that in mind as you read this verse. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Could that be all believers? After that, we who are still alive, when the Lord's coming back, they never went through an earthly physical death, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. In Luke 14, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid. And here's when. When will you be repaid? At the resurrection of the righteous. We are going to talk about that in the third week. Yep. Because it will tie into that. What does it mean to be present with Christ? Okay. And absent in the body. You know, the events of Revelation are going to get here if we take any longer. I, I know. We can hope. Um, he doesn't have all the this is what you had asked about before, Jordan, last week. Right, does it mean that David is actually going to reign then? The literal King David. Ezekiel 34 says, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I'll judge between one sheep and another. I'll place over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. It doesn't seem like David is the same person here. And my servant David will be prince among them. Goes on, I the Lord have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forest in safety. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hill, which would be Zion. I will send down showers in season and there will be showers of blessings. When this was written, David has already been dead for many years. So, is it possible that David represents Jesus here? Maybe. Are you, but, are go you ahead. Are you to tie into verse 6? Yes. Okay. In Revelation verse 6, it tells us the saints will live with God and Christ. Yes, and shall reign with him a thousand years. But it says they shall be priests of God and of Christ. That's going to be important here too. Yeah, he, right after my servant David, that's supposed to be a capital letter. Uh, where are you at? Well, blessed is he who is... No, go back to one. Oh, this one. Yeah, my servant David, I'll place over them one chapter, my servant David, and he, capital A. Um... 
I don't know. I might have put that in there. I'm not sure. It wouldn't be in the original, so I, we wouldn't know. It's all up into interpretation on that. So, um, Hosea also records in Hosea 3.5, Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. You could read it both ways. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Jeremiah 30, verse 9, Instead they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. That seems to suggest David, a person, the man David, because he will raise him up. So, during the millennial reign, is it possible King David? I think very much so. Some believe that David will be raised at this time. Hosea 3, 5, the one that I just read, same type of thing. Revelation 20, verse 6, again says, But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. What's interesting is, if you read 1 Peter 2, 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What am I saying? In closing out, if Jesus, or if, if it's all the saints, all the Christians that are coming alive at the first resurrection, and it says that they are going to be priests of God, it says that's what we're supposed to be doing. When is, is this for an eternity that you're a priest of God, or is this only during the millennial reign? Because here it almost seems to tie in to what we're reading in Revelation at the first resurrection, that you will be a priest of God. Revelation 1, 5 through 6 promised this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So, um, maybe David here is representative of Christ. But here in Revelation, verse 6 almost seems to say that the saints, the people, actual resurrected people are serving God. And if Christians are, why wouldn't David be one of them? So I think, personally, that this isn't talking about Jesus being David, but it's Jesus and David. So... That gives you a view of the first resurrection. We're going to see what's going to happen after the thousand years before. But right now, the point being is Satan is bound. Twelve thrones are set up, which probably seem to be the disciples, but the saints are also there because they are part of the first resurrection. Judging and serving God as priests. Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. It explains Ezekiel 40 through 48 and this weird temple that has never been built. 
that would need priests to serve, that talks about priests needing to be there to be served, and that this would be all things that are green to a blind man, as I said before. But that's the most that I can make sense of it from Scripture at this point. All right, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word and just the, the expectation of what is to come. Lord, we see some wonderful things here to be able to rule and reign with you. God, I'll tell you, I, I personally, I don't care if I get to reign. I just want to be with you. And I just thank you that through your son, Yeshua, that you have made that possible. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and that the second death will have no power over us. That we need not fear eternal damnation. What our sins and our own works or lack of deserve. But we can rest surely on you and your work that has been done. And that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that old self and crucifying it with you on that cross so that I might live anew by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.